Anna. Remember that time a lot of stuff happened on Christmas? time and historical podcast i'm your host anna webb and i'm your host amanda webb this is a podcast where two sisters totally geek out on all of their favorite moments in history and it's our new christmas special hooray how festive i love it i'm so excited there's snow on the ground i know it's so festive so festive while we're at it, I can give you a drink update. I'm having some hot chocolate, also oh, festive. That's great. I'm just drinking water because I just got home and I didn't <laughs> have time to make a festive beverage. Yeah. I do have the Christmas tree on, our family Christmas tree, because I'm at our parents' house right now. My Christmas tree is also on, but it's in the other room and right. I cannot see it. <laughs> but it's there and it's festive. Mm-hmm. I love it. So today we're going to cover a few topics because the theme is Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. We're going to fudge it a little bit. Events. Historical, interesting, cool things that happened on either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Yes. Yeah. I can't wait. So we each picked out a couple of things, little short little short things to talk about. And we're going to tell you some stories. And I'm looking forward to it. Me too. I need some Christmas cheer. Yep. I always have Christmas cheer. (laughs) Always. Even in 2020. (laughs) We must keep the spirit. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to go first. I'm going to get us started off. Hit it. My first topic is the Christmas truce of 1914. I love this. I do too. I have always wanted to do an episode on this, but I knew it wouldn't be long enough for a whole episode. So So here we are. Here we are, because I love this event. So, in late 1914, a few months into the beginning of World War I, the fighting on the Western Front of the war starts to kind of slow down because there had been, like, a ton of maneuvering and they, like, ran out of room from where yeah. they were heading. So there's, there's like, sort of a stalemate, and people are starting to, like, reassess their strategies for the war and stuff. So it kind of calms down a little bit. They're still, you know, fighting, but... Yeah, well, it's, it's a war. war. It's a war. <laughs> um, in early December, uh, both a group of British suffragettes and Pope Benedict the Fifteenth write <laughs> what and a- sign letters... <laughs> What a group. Well, it's not, they're not together. It's too I different. understand yeah. that, but it's just funny to have them, like, lumped together. Lumped together. Um, they, they write and sign letters proposing a temporary truce for the Christmas season. And both letters are ignored or, or refused by well, governments or whatever. It's Shocking. war. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. Um, in late November and early December... Some, like, friendly conversations and, like, temporary truces to collect and bury the dead begin to occur all across the Western Front. So in the month or two leading up to Christmas, people started to be like, oh, it's Christmas. We're tired. And we don't want to be fighting a war. And these people do Christmas and so do we. So let's just sort of chill for a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's just take a little bit of a breather. Um, So around 100,000 British and German troops are involved in the informal truces on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914. Uh, The Germans place candles and, like, Christmas trees on their trenches. Mm -hmm. um, And they start shouting greetings and singing carols to the (laughs) British. And shortly after that, the British respond with their own carols and similar greetings i love that i do too it's a christmas carol call in response <laughs> yes yes it. it is um after a while the men start very carefully uh venturing into no man's land yeah that's uh dangerous yeah even on christmas <laughs> yes but like it would be like we saw a group of german men and they were saying come out it's christmas and we were like uh i don't know mm. but then they could see that none of them had weapons right and they were like okay we get it <laughs> and there had also been 
some friendly relations leading up to this. So sure. they were a little less like, ah, you know. They're going to ambush us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they exchange gifts of food, tobacco, alcohol, and like souvenirs. So they like trade <laughs> buttons and hats. I love that. Which I love. Um, there are lots and lots and lots of really cool firsthand accounts from this event. But this is just one that I found that I really liked. Um, Bruce Barnes' father? Sure. Uh, who is a British soldier, soldier says, quote, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and with a few deft snips, removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. The last I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. (laughs) That's so interesting. That they felt like safe and comfortable enough to cut hair. Just get a haircut. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like the exchanging of like the buttons because it reminds me of like um, at international like sporting events, particularly soccer. Oh, yeah. Sometimes they'll swap jerseys at the end. I think oh. football players sometimes do it too. Like in America, they'll sometimes swap jerseys and stuff. And I just have always loved that. And that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. That like sportsmanship kind of thing. That's cool. Well, speaking of soccer. Uh, <laughs> right, of course. There are also several accounts of football matches yes. to occur in no man's land between opposing troops. There are all kinds of accounts of, like, pe- people keeping score uh, with, like, That's different so groups cool. of people. Um, there are some historians be- that believe those accounts, like, at least the original ones, may be false or exaggerated. They think that it's probably unlikely that they were holding, like, formal football matches. Well, uh, you know. Yeah, and it was more likely that it was just, like, a makeshift ball that they were kicking around. Well, it's like a pickup game. Yes. You still keep score in a pickup game, yes. you know? Um, And also that, like, the ground wouldn't have been good enough. I don't know. But I... I don't I, think they were looking for ideal footballing conditions. I know, I know. That's, that was my thought, too. I was like, why? Like, what do you mean? They can't kick a ball back and forth? <laughs> exactly. It ain't that bad. Um... There were also some truces on the Eastern Front. Uh, They're just less widespread. Mm -hmm. But the war was also less widespread over there. True. Um, uh, The truces are not reported on for a week. And then an unofficial sort of press embargo is broken by the New York Times, which Mm. is in the United States, which is neutral at the time. Right. Um, On December 31st, they publish a story about this. Uh, shortly after, British papers begin reporting on the event, and they publish a lot of firsthand accounts and letters from soldiers. Uh, the tone of all of that reporting is largely positive, like the very much. That's so surprising, especially in Britain during that time, because they were just so. I mean, the British royal family changed their family name because the country was so anti-German. Yes, you know. Um, but it was also very early in the war, and I guess. in a war that was so widespread that they've never experienced before. Like, this was probably the first time... It wasn't the first time a lot of those people had been in a war, but it was might have been the first time they'd been in a war that large at Christmas. Oh, for sure. So it was a very unique set of circumstances, you know? Like, they Mm -hmm. didn't really know how to respond besides saying, like, look at our fellow man, you know? Right, right. Um, German and French papers were much more reluctant to report on the truces. Uh, The German accounts largely criticized the truces. Shock. And then this quote I found interesting. In France, press censorship, oh gosh, (laughs) ensured that the only word that spread of the truce came from soldiers at the front or firsthand accounts told by wounded men in hospitals. Hmm. The press was eventually forced to respond to the growing rumors by reprinting a government notice that fraternizing with the enemy constituted treason. I mean, I guess that is technically true. Yeah, yeah. But they, like, they never reported on it. But because there were so many firsthand reports on it, they had to be like, this is treason. They had to acknowledge that it it happened, right? And it took a few weeks 
for like officials to acknowledge that it happened and sort of after the fact said like yes this was a truce and not that like their men just decided to have a truce right right you got to figure out how to spin it yeah yeah Yeah. um a few holiday truces are attempted over the next few years of the war but most of them are either squashed immediately or nothing really comes from them or they're very brief or well the war was more intense by that exactly yeah um but yeah, I love that event. It's such so a good one to start much. off on for our podcast because it's so like we all came together. And we, yeah, you know. the and next I was, one is not going to be quite as nice. <laughs> um, I was reading too about this um, something that said like, you know, it wasn't just that like here we are, our fellow man. It was um, a pattern of disrupting authority. Totally, because that these was, people didn't want to go to war. People were opposed were were opposing the war, right? And this was just a widespread moment where everyone was like, "This is pointless. Yeah. Why are we doing that?" There was this one British account I was reading where they said we couldn't get the Germans to start fighting with us again. <laughs> Because some yeah. of these truces lasted on to New Year's. Right, right. And they were like, they didn't, they just said, this is stupid. Why are we fighting? And they wouldn't start fighting with us again. And we wouldn't shoot at them because that would just be cold-blooded. Right, right. So they just were stuck. The, the yeah. Germans, like, wouldn't go back. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. So I love it because I love that, like, let's all come together for like a moment of human decency. But also it's an act of rebellion. Yeah. Which I love, especially on like such a a violent war and like the first time the world had really experienced anything like that. Totally. And it was like, yeah, that everybody just agreed that we needed that common moment in the middle of Mm -hmm. that wild event. I just think is so cool. And every media depiction of it makes me cry reading about it made me cry (laughs) yeah (laughs) i love it well are you ready to talk about a different war yes why 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 did this happen (laughs) i don't know (laughs) so we're now going to switch gears and talk about washington crossing the delaware yes it's so funny because normally you would do british history and i would do and you would do american especially with washington yeah it's so funny to me especially with the revolutionary war but i'm doing two american history things and i'm doing and you're doing two european what's happening i don't know so weird it's christmas okay so it's the Revolutionary War. It's the year 1776. New it's York City. No, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it is New York City. <laughs> where in Long Island, it's around August, British General Howe has landed troops in Long Island and has basically driven George Washington's Continental Army completely out of the state. And they're pushed back out of New York by around mid-November of that year, right? So there's some background I'm going to get into here because there has to be background before the event. Otherwise, it will not make sense. So General Howe has left mainly Hessian troops in New Jersey. And they're all ordered to small outposts around in and around Trenton, New Jersey. And Howe sends troops um to across the Hudson River into New Jersey and and basically chases Washington all across New Jersey at this point. And while this is happening, Washington's army is significantly shrinking yep. <laughs> for a couple of reasons, mainly expiring enlistments. So mm-hmm. all the people who are enlisted, their time that they have to serve is running out. And also lots of desertion. Yep. <laughs> It's a problem. It's winter in New York at this point, and they are not, they don't even care that deserters are, you know, basically considered to be the worst of the worst in the army. They're out. Um, so most of Washington's army crosses the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, just north of Trenton, New Jersey. Um, and a lot of their boats are either destroyed or they're moved away from them for miles in both directions, so they don't really have boats at this point. Um, And Cornwallis has established a chain of outposts from New Brunswick to Burlington, and then he basically says to his troops, well, it's winter, that's it for this season, let's get into quarters and 
you know, we're going to take a break, basically, right? It's winter. We're done with the campaign season. (laughs) We're taking a winter hiatus from our war. Well, it was like they couldn't, they wouldn't have survived long if they had tried to fight. So, at this point, Washington's army has around 4,000 to 6,000 men. And around 1,700 of those are unfit for duty because they require medical attention. They're that badly beaten up. Wow. Oof. Looking rough for my dude. (laughs) We're not done. I know. Because two divisions of his army are also separated from him. Oof. So General Horatio Gates has his uh, division in the Hudson River Valley, and they're both of these divisions are ordered to come and join Washington. But Gates's army is delayed in getting to him because of heavy snow. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we have General Charles Lee. Oh, bless. Oh, this dude. <laughs> he... He has, at this point, around 2,000 troops, and he's ordered to come in and join them. And he basically says, no, I want to stay near the British flank in Morristown, New Jersey. Oh, Charles Lee was bad at his job. Well, we're about to talk about that again, because that <laughs> didn't really work out with him uh, no. for him so well. Because no. on December 20th, General Lee's division of the army arrives in Washington's camp, but he's not with them. They're under the command of General John Sullivan. And do you know why Lee is not with them? Why is that? Because he had been captured by the British on December 12th because he ventured too far outside of the protection of his troops in search of more comfortable lodgings. Oh, what a punk. That guy was so dumb. He is the worst. The worst. But later that same day, December 20th, General Gates' division also arrives. They have been reduced to, like, 600 of their people's enlistments had ended, so they're gone. Oh. Um, <laughs> so that's not great. Um, but then they get some more troops that come in from Philadelphia. So he, he's got, he's he got enough now. Up. Yeah. Yeah, he has enough now that he can take a bold approach because Washington had kind of been planning for a while that he might want to attack because he knows that the British troops have basically shut up, shut down for the winter. Right. So he plans three crossings of the Delaware river with his troops. Um, the largest contingent, which he would lead, um, would lead the attack on Trenton. Sure. Right. And then a second one would come in under Cadwallader. I've never known how to pronounce that person's name. Um, (laughs) And they would cross at Dunks Ferry and create a diversion to the south. And then the third would come in and cross at Trenton Ferry and then hold the bridge across Assunpink Creek, which is an unfortunate name. Um, which is just south of Trenton, so that they couldn't escape that way either. And then, after Trenton was secure, the plan was that then they could go on and attack the British troops that were in Princeton and New Brunswick. So, preparations for the attack began on December 23rd. And then on December 24th, the boats used to bring the army across from New Jersey in the first place are brought down... Uh, from Malta Island near New Hope. Oh, okay. And, and they're, like, hidden. They, like, tighten security ah. and they hide them all over the place. So that Which is, like, wild to think them. about being able to hide some big old boats. You <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah. Well, they weren't that big. I know. Really. I know. But, but still, it's, yeah. like... Yeah, that's what I th- thought the whole time I was reading Huckleberry Finn, and they would be oh, like, yeah. and we hit our boat on the shore. And I'm like, <laughs> you did what? Well... Generally speaking, I think when you hide a boat, you, like, cover it in brambles. And, like, tie it up to the shore. I understand how but that's it works. that's, like, it's just, one. It's, yeah, that's it's like just one. weird yeah. to think about. <laughs> yeah. So, general orders are issued by Washington on December 25th, outlining the plans for the operation. Um, so, on the morning of the 25th, Washington orders his army to prepare 
three days worth of food and issues orders that every soldier be outfitted with fresh flints for their muskets. And he tells them, like, this is a super top secret mission. Like, you you need to be prepared and also don't blab. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they plan to the the plan requires them to start crossing basically as soon as it gets dark enough for them to conceal their movements on the river but they don't actually end up reaching the crossing point until about 6 p.m which is like 90 minutes after sunset Uh um and the weather starts getting progressively worse it's like drizzling then raining then sleeting then snowing oh that's how it was all day yesterday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Literally yesterday's like weather. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at about 11 p.m. on Christmas Day, Washington's army starts its crossing of the half-frozen river at three locations. Um, the amount of ice on the river actually prevents the artillery, like the people who are taking the artillery from finishing the crossing until like 3 a.m. on December 26th. Um, But the troops are ready to march around 4 a.m. So it's later than they expected, but they get there. It's dark enough. They can still do all their stuff in the dark. (laughs) But again, this is still just the first crossing. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So the other two divisions, which make up around 3,000 men and artillery, don't reach the meeting point in time. They just don't they just don't get there in time. But Washington says, we're doing it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean at that point, you've put a lot of effort into it. <laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll wrap it up quickly because not it's not a ton after that. But on December 26th, Washington orders the army to split into two columns and he commands one and then General Green commands uh with with General Green commands with him, and then General Sullivan commands the other. Uh-huh. And they they basically split up into two columns, and they ambush, essentially. Do, do some war. Yeah. Um, only three Americans are killed. Wow. Um, and six are wounded, but 22 of the Hessians are killed, and 98 are wounded. Wow. And the Americans end up capturing, like, a thousand prisoners, and they get muskets and powder and artillery. So generally speaking, it wasn't like a huge significant uh like victory Not from like a, a strategic por- standpoint or anything, yeah. No. But the fact that the army was so like dwindling, like the news of this really successful attack really raised the spirits of American colonists and the other people in the army, um, who basically thought that there was no possible way we could win. Right. Um, but the fact that he pulled that he off made people be like, all right, we can do it. Yeah. And that's Washington crossing the Delaware. That's great. That's one of those things that, like, you know is super famous that you forget happened on Christmas. I always remember that one happened on Christmas. I don't know why. It's just that's one of those things that stuck into my brain. A I fun guess. fact that stuck in your brain. Well, in all the, like, paintings and stuff of it, it's like there's they paint in, like, the ice and snow and yeah. stuff. So you're like, oh, yeah, it was on Christmas. It was cold. <laughs> Yeah, it was rough. Yeah. <laughs> it was really imagine. rough. I cannot imagine. No, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My next thing uh, is the creation of the song Silent Night. Oh, this is lovely. And I this, love this. this one we have a connection to, which I will talk about when we get there. But. Yeah. We briefly mentioned it in our the last time we did like a Christmas special uh-huh. where we talked about Christmas carols. We we briefly mentioned it then. Yeah. But, but I love this story. Uh, I Because Ann and I are connected to it, I was forced to tell it every year uh, at, <laughs> yeah. Chris, at the Christmas concerts for my at choir school. as a child. Yeah. Yep. Um, so here is that story. on christmas eve uh of 1818 a young austrian priest named joseph moore is preparing for the christmas mass service at saint nicholas paris parish church in oberndorf i think so uh austria Uh, A couple years earlier, in 1816, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Moore had written a poem called Stille Nacht. I believe um, that's my best 
That's how I German. always said it. That's how I always <laughs> said it. It's my best German. Because despite the fact that we are descended from many, many, many Germans, I don't know how to speak it. Me either. Um, but yes, he had written this poem a few years before, like reflecting after the Napoleonic Wars um, had ended. And on Christmas Eve of 1818, Moore asks the organist and choir director of the church, Franz Gruber, to write a melody for the words to his poem. And Franz Gruber is our great-great-grandmother's great-uncle. We spent so much time last night talking to our mom about this. So much time figuring. So he is our great, 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 great uncle. Probably like once removed. Yeah, we are five. I I don't know how that works. We are five generations away from him. Yeah, on our mom's Mom's dad's dad's side. side. (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. On our grandpa's side. Our maternal maternal grandpa. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so we are related. To this gentleman. We are descended from this gentleman. Yeah. The church's organ is damaged because of a flood of the nearby river. So uh, Gruber writes the melody and accompaniment on the guitar. So the mm-hmm. first time it's ever performed, it's on the guitar and not Most on the piano. Most people don't know that. Yes. I've, like, I've told people that before. They're like, huh. Yeah. Because you just don't think of it. You think of it as a piano song. Also, it's hard on the guitar. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I don't even play guitar, and I know that. Yeah. Um, so the two men in the church choir perform that song for the first time during the Christmas Mass uh, on Christmas Eve of 1818. The organ repairman, Carl Morcher? Morcher? I don't know. Okay. Um, apparently takes a copy of the song home with him. And then he passes that on to two traveling folk singing families, the Strassers and the Rainers. Oh my god, it's just like Sound of Music. <laughs> not really, because there's no a lot Nazis, more in Sound of Music. Yeah, yeah no Nazis. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> uh, by uh, 1834, the song is performed for the King of Prussia. Uh, and it was performed for many other famous people also. Uh, and in 1839, the Rainiers sing it at Trinity Church in New York City. Oh. Yeah. Uh, The carol has been translated into about 140 languages. And here's a cool little connection to my first topic. Because of this, we know that this song was super popular during the Christmas truces because it could be sung in German, French, and English. Yes. So it had already been translated and popularized in all of those languages. (laughs) So it was something that they could, like, actually sing together. Right. It always makes me think of the scene from the Patrick Stewart Christmas Carol. Yes, I was just thinking that. Where they show them all in different cities and some of them are, like, in jail. And and they're all singing singing the song. The song. In different languages. Yes, it's my favorite. We watched Muppet Christmas Carol last night and I was thinking about that then, too. Yes. Yes. Um, the original manuscript was lost for many years, so a ton of people attributed the song to, like, Hayden and Mozart and Beethoven, because Mm -hmm. they, like, just didn't know who wrote it. Um, Mm -hmm. and then in 1995, um, one of the original manuscripts is discovered, and it's in Moore's handwriting, and it attributes the lyrics to himself, and it attributes the composer to Franz Gruber. Um, the church where the song was first performed, uh, was eventually destroyed by floods, but there is now the Silent Night Chapel on the site of the original church where you can visit it. I would love to go there. I would too. I think it's so cool. When we can go places again. Yes. It's definitely on the list. Um, yeah. So I know that was a shorter one, but it is one of my favorite Christmassy stories. Well, and we grew up being told the story like all the time by our great aunt who lives next door um who lived next door to us before she passed so we'd go over there and she'd talk about it and i think she got interviewed by like one of the local papers or yes something mom had a newspaper here. she still has it yeah. for sure she still has the newspaper talking about that i bet you whenever they discovered the original manuscript because that only happened in 1995 Maybe. i had a feeling it was after that but i don't know it could have been somewhere in remember. there yeah yeah um but a thing that my school choir always did every year was sing this song in German. 
And I told my choir teacher that we were related to that guy. And she was like, oh my gosh. And every year before we would sing the song, she made me read the story of the song. (laughs) I didn't have to. I didn't get roped into that. Yeah. I had a different choir teacher, I think. Didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't have to do that, but mostly because I would have never done that. Like, if she would yeah. have said, do that, I would have been like, <laughs> no, I will not be speaking <laughs> I won't be, in front of everyone. You. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, it's a good one. Thanks. Okay, we're switching gears. Again. This is totally different. <laughs> so last topic here, we're going to talk about Apollo 8 orbiting the moon. They finished their orbit on Christmas Eve, so let's talk about Excellent. it. Excellent. I love it. Again, some background. (laughs) So during the 1950s and 1960s, obviously the U.S. is engaged with the cold in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Yes. Um, And on October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik 1, which is the first artificial satellite. Um, So this is like not great for the U.S. because (laughs) the space race, baby. It caused a lot of panic because people were like, they're definitely spying on us. And it's like, well, yeah, but not with that. Because <laughs> um, they were, but not really so much with that. Um, and also it it demonstrates that they that the Soviet Union has the capability to deliver nuclear weapons over intercontinental distances. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, like, threatens America's superiority, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what launches, like you said, the space race. Ah, uh, the space race. So what happens is that JFK, John F. Kennedy, is determined to prove that America is superior. Right. Big thing for us here, <laughs> in case you haven't noticed. Um, so he launches Project Apollo, the goal being to land a man on the moon and return him safely to the earth. Um, so I have to talk a little bit about the mission and I apologize in advance. I'm going to get a lot of the technical stuff, like either I'm going to gloss over, or I might get some of it wrong. I'm going to try really hard not to, okay. but this is not something I'm super well versed on, but we have to talk about certain aspects of it to understand like why it happened the way right, that it did. Right, right, you right. You know? Yes. So... Basically, what they decide is that the Apollo spacecraft would have three primary components. A command module with a cabin for the, for three astronauts. Um, that would be the thing that would return to Earth, mm-hmm. right? A service module to provide the command module with propulsion. Right. And yes, okay. electrical power and oxygen and water and all that. And then a two-stage lunar module, which would, which comprised a descent stage for landing on the moon, and then an ascent stage to return them to to return the astronaut not to well to orbit around the moon. Right. I can. I can. Then they visual, can return to Earth. I can visualize that based on yeah the it, what it, I've seen of of spaceships. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So the initial crew. Has Frank Borman as the commander, Michael Collins as the command module pilot, and William Anders as the lunar module pilot. Collins, pretty early on, is replaced by Jim Lovell um, in July of 1968 after he suffers a cervical disc herniation and has to get surgery. So he's out. Um, There's also, of course, a backup crew, which is... Neil Armstrong as the commander. We all know him. Mm-hmm. Um, Lovell was initially the command module pilot on that crew. Mm-hmm. And then Buzz Aldrin as the lunar module pilot. We know him too. Um, but of course, Lovell gets bumped up. So then oh, it's like a whole thing. <laughs> Aldrin is moved up to the command module pilot and then they have to move somebody up. Apollo is unique in that they have a third crew, which was not super common then. Um, I would imagine had... many things weren't super common in no. terms of space travel then. <laughs> well, no, but some of these people had been on, like, the Gemini missions right, and that kind right. of thing. Um, so basically, the the third crew is, like, a support crew that would be, like, on the ground and ensure that the prime and backup crews knew if there were any changes. They developed... 
a lot of the procedures for the simulators that okay. then the primary and backup crews would would then practice in the simulators. You uh-huh. know? Um, so for for Apollo Eight, the support crew was Ken Mattingly, Vance Brand, and General or Gerald Carr. <laughs> I read the word General so much earlier. Yes, that I got that wrong. So. On September 20th, 1967, NASA adopts a seven-step plan for the Apollo missions. Again, this is important to, like, generally know. Uh-huh. So Apollo 4 and 6 are to be the A missions, and they would test the launch vehicle. Okay. Apollo 5 would be the B mission to test the lunar module in an Earth orbit. Seven Apollo 7 would then be the C mission, which would be a crewed Earth orbit flight. And then Apollo 8 is planned as the D mission, which would test the lunar module in a low Earth orbit. And that was planned for December of 1968. And then the E mission would be like a more rigorous test of the lunar module in an elliptical medium Earth orbit. Um, And then the F mission would test the command and service module. And the lunar module in orbit, and then the G mission would be landing someone on the moon. So right? they te- they're like testing each piece of the process in, in more than one way. Yes. So that by yeah. the time they are going to the moon, it will be like actually safe and functional. Correct. Which, yes, good. <laughs> but then yeah. the production of the lunar module falls behind. So Apollo 8's... LM-3, Lunar Module, like Model 3, basically, I guess, arrives at the Kennedy Space Center in June of 1968, and there are significant defects. Um, And dealing with all those defects could set the Apollo 8's D mission to as late as March or February of 1969. Which would set which the whole is thing back. not good because JFK wants to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Yep. He wants to go to the moon in 1969. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I was waiting for it. I, I had to make it, it happen. It's the whole thing. Yes, of course. So. That's <laughs> when we went to the moon. We went to the moon in 1969. So, NASA's George Lowe proposes a new plan, a solution, that would basically launch Apollo 8 without a lunar module. So, what would happen is a command and service module only mission would be flown in December of 1968 um, instead of repeating the C mission of Apo- that Apollo 7 was supposed to do. Okay. So it could be sent all the way to the moon with the possibility of entering a lunar orbit and then returning to Earth. It just wouldn't um, be able to, like, land and they wouldn't be able to test any of that. Right. Yeah. But they can test certain other things that otherwise they probably wouldn't have gotten to. Uh-huh. You know, like, some some stuff. Of, they could find out some more stuff about, like, entry to the moon and, you know, that sort yes. of thing. So they all agree they're going to launch Apollo 8 this way so that... Oh, and in order to make sure the craft would have the correct weight and balance, Apollo 8, it's it's decided that Apollo 8 is going to carry a lunar module test. But not like article. a functional one. It's like a boilerplate model okay. of the, the LM3, which would have the same weight and balance. So for physical but, purposes, but not all they're the going to carry like, it. But not the same junk inside of it. It doesn't, it, they're not going to use its function, right. basically. So... On December 21st, 1968, Apollo 8 is launched at 7.51 a.m. Eastern Standard Time with the Saturn V rocket from Cape Kennedy, which is now Cape Canaveral. Um, And it is flown by Frank Borman, James Lovell Jr., and William Anders. Um, About 18 hours into the flight, Borman gets sick. um, And... They have to, like, do medical consultations via the radio. That is wild. And then it's also, like, you're in space, so your body reacts to things differently. Well, yeah. That's, oh, kind it's of, so, that's probably why he got sick. It's so weird. It's so yeah. weird to think about. It's like, do you have a cold? Cool. I have no idea what's going to happen next. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to help you, right? Yeah. But he feels better after he gets some rest. That's good. Um, 
There were some other things that I left out of here, like their course correction and stuff, because that's not really the point of the story. But you can read more about it. You can read all about it on NASA's website. All the technical stuff. Right. So loss of signal occurred at 68 hours, 58 minutes, 45 seconds when Apollo 8 passed behind the moon. And at that moment, NASA's three astronauts became the first humans to see the moon's far side. That is dope. Which is crazy. Um, they also snap all the pictures while they're up there. Like, you can see the pictures of, like, the Earth and all that stuff. It's crazy. So cool. So, but we're here to talk about Christmas. So, on Christmas Eve, Apollo 8 orbits the moon and shares a public broadcast. Um, the astronauts send images of the moon and the Earth via this public broadcast. And they take turns reading from the book of Genesis, um, closing with a wish for everyone on the good earth. <laughs> um, so the crew ends up circling the moon a total of 10 times. And on Christmas Eve, that's when they it's time for them to return home. Um, well, that's when they finish. Right. So on Christmas morning, Mission Control is like waiting for word from them that Apollo 8's engine burn was leaving lunar orbit and that it had worked. Um, so they get confirmation when Lovell radios to them, Roger, please be informed there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> oh, I love that. And then the crew splashes down in the Pacific on December 27, 1968 at 10.52 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And That's they completed the first orbit of the moon. Awesome. That is so awesome. That's a pretty cool thing that happened on Christmas. That's very cool. Like, imagine sitting at home on Christmas Eve and, like, listening to astronauts talk about seeing the moon from the far side for the first imagine time. Imagine being an astronaut and circling the moon on Christmas Eve and then coming out on Christmas Day and, like, figuring out we made it out of lunar orbit. That's so And it's cool. Christmas morning. That like, that's so pretty cool. wild. It's very Doctor Who of them. Oh, it's extremely <laughs> Doctor Who of them. I love it. I love the idea of that. That is so I'm cool. sure that I'll do an episode, or maybe you will. One of us might do an episode on, like, the moon landing at some point. Because, oh, man. We, <laughs> yeah. we talked about it a little bit um, when we talked about Katherine Johnson, but not in its entirety. Yeah. Right. Um, but I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I loved it. Those are good topics, this well, thank you. History's great, but today is cool, too. What's your favorite thing about modern times? Welcome to Modern Times. It's a portion of the podcast, what I call it, a segment of the podcast <laughs> where we talk about things that we like about the here and now. Yes. Amanda was dancing while I sang the song. Yeah, to distract of course her. I was, because it's my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite song. <laughs> well, would you like me to go first? I think you went first last time. Yeah, you can go first. Okay. So my thing that i love is holiday commercials oh and i'm not talking about like the new ones that are like shop this holiday sale i'm talking about the ones that have like been around that they repeat every year classics like for me when i was growing up it was the campbell soup commercial with the little like the snowman comes inside and he eats the soup and then he it melts and it's a little boy underneath they don't show that anymore I and I I can remember the year they stopped showing it, I was very upset. I was like, I haven't seen that commercial, and I was really upset. Or, like, the, the M&M's one where they see Santa. Oh, yeah. Or the, and he's um, like, they are real. The Hershey's Jingle Bell That's one. That's the other one I was yeah. going to say. I love them. I love the, like, classic so holiday ads. And holiday every time ads. a new one properly captures that spirit without pandering to me is impressive. And I'll tell you what it is this season. It's the Etsy I knew you were going to say it was the Etsy commercials. They're so, They're so good. good. They're, so They're really good. good. Yeah. Yes. Love and it's, it's, it's tough this year because everybody's like, it's been a hard year. The holidays look different. And that's not the commercial I'm looking for, no, no, right? No. I'm looking for the one that gives me the holiday spirit. Yes. You know what I love? Yeah. When Coke nails their commercial for the year. Yeah, I always look forward to the Coke commercials. Because it's always with good, but I love when they bears. nail it, you know? Yeah, the polar bears are always good. They're classic. Yes. Even though those ads change, they fall into this category. Yes, they're still, yeah. they still are reminiscent. They don't try totally. too hard to be, like, flashy and modern or whatever. 
Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, here's the thing. I don't need Coke to sell to me. No. Right? Like, I'm going to drink Coca-Cola when I want a Coca-Cola because, like, they're established. Yes. Right? I don't need them to sell. Same with M&M's. I don't need M&M's to sell to me. No. So, like, it's really about what cool commercial concept did their advertisers come up with. Yes. Like, that I'm interested in. It's the same way we watch Super Bowl ads. It's a similar hundred percent process you know yeah totally excellent mine is christmas yard decorations (laughs) that's very good that's good i love them even when they're bad i love them so much it's like it christmas yard decorations are great for many reasons one putting the lights on your house is always going to be beautiful especially in the snow i love to look at it i like to see how people design you know what i mean like yeah um our dad was saying last night he was like i think this is the first time in a long time that we've had two snows while the christmas lights were yes up. probably we were like I, I like went outside and was just looking at our lights in the yeah. snow last night yeah for sure. I sent you a video. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes. Um, I love seeing how people choose to use their house to yeah. the to the design of it. You know what I mean? But then I, I do. also love stupid, horrible, gaudy blow-up things. Griswold and decorations. Flashing yeah. lights and it being just way too big and the music is ridiculous. Like, I love driving around and looking at it. And I just love everybody just going whole hog for literally no reason at all. So can I tell you about a Christmas decoration? (laughs) So I, when I, before I uh, left Pittsburgh to come home for a few weeks, I was driving, um, like back from, I had gone to Trader Joe's and uh, where, where the Trader Joe's near me is, is like kind of a more, you know, like bougie neighborhood. And so all the houses are beautiful and they're decorated. They're so pretty. And I get kind of out of that area and I'm getting sort of back toward mine. And I look down a side street and there are maybe a couple houses with like some lights up. And then there is one house that has nothing except the most massive. I I cannot describe to you how massive this thing was. Inflatable snowman. It's like the skeleton. I know this snowman. It's, yes. It's like it the giant skeleton. Enormous. Yes. Like it could like I it could have picked up their house if it were real. Yes. That's how big it was. It's the, it's the Christmas equivalent of the 12 foot ske- Home Depot skeleton. Yeah. And I just loved that they were like, do we need other light? Nah. Just that. This is all That's we need. Probably Put a good. spotlight on it. It's all we need. I don't even know if they did that because it wasn't dark enough, but yeah, it was hilarious. And then we drove around um, our little sort of, you know, the neighborhood next to like ours where there are some nice houses. We drove around there the other night Um, and they've got like the houses up on the hill. I know you know where I'm talking about up on the hill in the loop. Uh huh. There's one that's just like fully lined with lights. Yes. I love that look. Yes, same. I'm fully into that. And they have a massive Santa Claus in the window. Oh, There's a tree and a Santa next to it in the big front window, like, looking out at the street. <laughs> so funny. There's a house in my town that goes all out for Halloween, and I drove by their house the other day, and they have a giant Krampus on their porch. And it's like, of course oh. you do. Of course you have a giant Krampus on your porch. I know exactly which house you're talking about. I love it. I, I love, love that. It. That was a really good one, Amanda. Thank you. I love Christmas displays. Same. The house across the street from our grandparents' house usually goes all out. We call them the Griswolds of, like, the neighborhood. And they do music. And they have, like, a really long front yard. And they just and pack they it with inflatables. fill it with inflatables. They didn't do it this year. Um, I think because <laughs> more than once, the lights they put on the front of the house has ripped down their siding. Uh, and just... this year they haven't gotten it fixed yet. So I think they just weren't putting them. So they didn't put them out. But... Our grandma said maybe their electric bill gets too high. <laughs> I well, was like, that yeah. probably is true. But usually we spend Christmas Eve at our grandma's house. We're not doing that this year because COVID. But usually we're sitting there like opening gifts on Christmas Eve with our family. And there's flashing lights just coming listening through the window. To it. Oh, my God. It's so funny. And cars slowing down in front of the house because people will like roll down their windows to, to listen look to at the it. music yes. and look oh. at it. So funny. It's excellent. Oh, God bless. We love the Griswolds of the world. Yes. That was a really good one. Thanks. Well, friends... That was our holiday special for the year. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say a thing. Um, if you are in the giving spirit this Christmas season, please consider donating to Wikipedia. 
because oh, yes. Wikipedia is the lifeblood of this podcast um, <laughs> and also of all human beings all the time. And they mm-hmm. what they do, they do for completely free. Um, and I think that they're fantastic. And this time of year, I really like to give to them because of how much they give to the world. So if you're looking for something to donate to, I would recommend giving some money to Wikipedia because they're wonderful. That's a good point. And normally this time of year, we're like hyping you up on like the Project for Awesome, yes. which is a thing that we do every year. Um, they have decided to push it back to February. So we'll talk to you about it then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we will talk to you about it. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, it's our last episode of 2020. 2020 is coming to an end. I can't believe it. Bless. I'm so, oh amazing and i know that not all of our problems will be fixed in 2021 but at but least it's looking up this chief year it's looking up will be behind us yeah um so we hope that you all have a really lovely and safe holiday season we hope that if you have access to the vaccine uh in the near future that you get it um and you take care of yourselves and your loved ones and I don't know what we'll be doing next time because we haven't thought that far ahead not but at all be the first episode of the new year and um yeah, I think that's it for that. Um, if you have topic suggestions that maybe you want us to talk about next year, um, or if you have questions or comments or whatever, you can email us at rememberthatpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at RTTPod. And we're also on Facebook if you just search the name of the podcast. Um, we would love it if you would send us a rating or review wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you want to find me on the internet, I am at the real Anna Webb. And I'm at ACW Nerdfighter. And I also wanted to give one quick plug. Um, this will be coming out before Christmas Day. So on Christmas Day, I will be um, guesting on a wonderful podcast called Polidarity Forever, wherein um, the McRoy brothers every year watch Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 and do a podcast about it. And every year, me and a group of folks at the Good Idea podcast are um, going to listen to the second episode of their podcast in Polidarity <laughs> with them. Um, I had very so meta. So much fun doing it. So if any of that stuff seems like something that interests you, I will be on that podcast. Please go listen to it and enjoy it. <laughs> such a weird thing it's to try the to best i love it <laughs> well thank you all for listening yes have a um, very merry christmas yes and until next time remember that time